Every month, we offer exciting new webinars for our community. Topics include how to use retirement accounts to buy real estate overseas, how to get a second passport in Latin America, why you should sell your stock portfolio and move your money offshore, how to buy beachfront rental properties in Brazil for less than $100,000, or apartments in Paraguay for less than $60,000. If you want to join us for free for these presentations with live Q&A, insider secrets, and exclusive opportunities with my professional network of experts, then go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for free upcoming presentations. expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe, and this is the Expat Money Show. Today's guest is the Director of Research at Andrianople Group, a business intelligent firm that focuses on special economic zones and master-planned cities. He is also the architect of Open Zone Map, the world's largest SEZ data set. He advises for Pronomos, a VC fund that invests in new city projects, and co-founded the Startup Society's Network, a charter city think tank. He frequently writes about SEZ's economic history and the open data movement. Please welcome to this show, Thibaut Serlet. Thibaut, how are you? I'm doing excellent. How about you? Very good. I'm very happy to have you on the show. So I want to hear a little bit about your backstory. How did you get into this? Because this is really specialized type of knowledge set, I would say. So I'm very interested in the frontiers of governance. I sort of fell into it by accident. I founded the Startup Societies Foundation, which led me to get an internship at a VC fund. Doing research for them, I realized that all the data they were using was fake. And one person hired me to do some consulting work. Another person did. And I kind of ended up here as an accident. So nothing too interesting. Well, so did you study to come into this field or something that would prepare you for it or something earlier in your life that really kind of set your interest in this pace? Well, so I dropped out of college. Well, no, I I took a gap year that became two gap years when I dropped out. And because I was out of college, I decided that I was going to read a fiction book every single week to make sure that my brain didn't atrophy. And I started a book review blog called tibosorlay.com, my name. And I've managed to keep it up for the last six, seven years. And what it turned out is that I read a lot about uh, history and specifically the history of the evolution of government from really its most primitive state, you know, in Sumer to now. What's fascinating, because this might actually be a a good way to shimmy into uh, special economic zones, what I started realizing is that Special economic zones, they're often talked about as a modern phenomenon. And you always hear people, oh, the first SEZ was Shenzhen 1979. But actually, one thing that got me fascinated and very curious is that I realized that they went back centuries and centuries, or at least entities that have different names and have exactly the same functions. And it played a major role in state formation throughout all of time. That's amazing. First of all, I 
commend you for dropping out of college. I dropped out of high school. I'm completely self-taught as well. And it's so interesting to be able to start a blog or a newsletter, or in my case, a podcast, where it becomes, it's a passion, it's a work, but it actually, more than anything, keeps you accountable. I don't know if you found that this in your life, but certainly through my work of the last six, seven years of, of newsletter and podcasting and blogging and things like that, it's kept me so accountable to people outside of myself. There's sometimes in the day that I don't feel like putting out a newsletter. It's 11 o'clock at night and I haven't got my podcast ready for the next morning. Doesn't matter. I am staying up past midday to make sure this thing gets out. And actually you end up building up this base of knowledge because of this responsibility that you have to others. And it sounds to me like that, that's what you have done with the special economic zones. Well, you know, the book review is just a hobby, but it is funny that you say that because sometimes I review an average of a book a week. Sometimes I'll review a month's works of book in one day. And when I haven't written a review in a while, I get messages, hey, Tebow, when's your next review coming? So that's definitely the case. All right. So I have a, an interesting story that might tie, actually, my interest in history into podcasting. Now, this story, I, I ended up reading all the primary sources, and it turned out to be completely fake. There's no historical basis for this whatsoever. It was just made up by some economists in the early 20th century through some weird interpretation of the texts. But there's this legend that was invented by early 20th century economists that highlights the importance of these special economic zones. The Roman Empire is at war with Carthage, and they win this war. And I, by the way, I went back and I read all the primary sources. It's totally made up. There's, but it's just interesting because it's a legend, a 20th century legend about the Romans. So the Roman Empire is at war against Carthage. Their entire fleet is sunk. Their treasury is bankrupt. Uh, their manpower is depleted. There's no appetite or ability to fight another war. And there's this major problem where a lot of Carthage's allies, now that they've taken out Carthage, are eyeing Rome hungry, sort of at this position. And one of the allies is the Greek city-state slash island of Rhodes, located near modern-day Turkey. Rhodes is famous for having this colossus, which is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And this island has a whole bunch of colonies all over the Mediterranean. So although it's kind of a city-state similar to Rome, it's actually a very economically powerful city-state. And Rhodes is making all of these threats and is grandstanding and is threatening to blockade Rome's ports. And all of this is historical. And here's where some of the, the mythologizing comes in. So the Roman solution to defeat Rhodes was that they realized that they would be unable to defeat Rhodes militarily. So they instead decided to hack their economic system. The entire government budget of Rhodes was funded by a 5% tariff that they levied for boats coming in and out of the various ports that they held. So the Romans bought an island of Delos, which was used in the past for uh, ritualistic purposes, kind of an island that had a magical reputation. So they take this island that's near Delos and they build a new port there. And this port has a 0% tariff. And within about a decade, Rhodes is bankrupt and begs to join the Roman Empire with their hands down. And Rhodes is defeated without an arrow shot or a sword clashed, right? Well, this is a legend. What you find is that a special economic zone is a geographically limited area where the government has changed rules and regulations for the purpose of stimulating the economy. And while you might think of Shenzhen 
There are fascinating examples of this that go back centuries and are actually deeply tied in some cases with state formation. Okay. Amazing story, but you said it's not true? It really is just a made-up story, a legend? Yeah, so I read the sources. It's true that Rhodes went bankrupt. It's true that they joined the Republic. It's true that the Romans had this tax-free port of Delos. But all the sources say, if you go back and you actually read the Greeks, there may be some source that they're using. And it's like, oh, the island of Delos traded many slaves and grew a lot during this period. So historians have concocted this whole narrative about Delos being the cause of Rhodes' bankruptcy. But, but I don't know if that part's true. Okay, very interesting. Now, I have had Peter Young on the show. I've had Francisco Letve on the show. We've talked about charter cities and free private cities and things like that. Your work is different. Explain to me how. Yeah, so I mostly work with more traditional special economic zones. We made a map. And what we know is that there's about 5,000 business parks that have been granted by their government's regulatory exemptions to make them operate better. The famous ones that you always hear about are Freeport Bahamas. It's in the name. You hear about Shenzhen in China. You hear about various types of these projects that were built in Dubai. There's Dubai Internet City, Dubai Multimodal Commodity Center. But that's it. These are the ones you hear about. But what's not well known is that in some countries, these business parks that are legally autonomous control like 40 or 50 percent of the GDP of a whole bunch of countries. And it's hard to tell because in many countries, the statistics are quite bad. But the Philippines, for example, has something like three or four hundred of these special economic zones. A lot of these zones are very small operations where it's like one factory and the owner and a few buildings. And the economy is completely dominated by this. So what type of regulatory exemptions they have? Well, they have various tax breaks. And this is very complicated. A lot of good thought and energy and time and money goes into understanding the tax breaks in these things. So we can go there, but it's not super interesting. A lot of them have exemptions from the local labor laws. So for example, some countries require, you know, 10% of your staff has to be from here. But if you're making very high-tech radar dishes or something, and there's 500 technicians in the world who can do this, or all the local people just suck for some reason. The education is bad. There's a language where there's very good reasons why you might not want to have 10% of the staff be local. You're exempt from that. A lot of them have one-stop shops where they've consolidated all of the different regulatory agencies into a single regulatory body. So before you might pay, you know, the property tax to the city and the income tax to one agency, the tariff to a third, you get a building permit from one, a hiring permit from another. Think about you're interacting with 30 agencies, 30 opportunities for bribes and corruption, 30 times the headache. They consolidate this into a single, in some cases, privatized entity. And in the cases where it's private, they act as a metaphorical user interface in between you and the government. But in some cases, it's a literal user interface where they've literally built software that automates a lot of this. A lot of these zones, you know, in countries that have very poor infrastructure conditions, they're in countries where the electricity is expensive and it's flaky and there's blackouts. So they have their own electrical grids, their own water systems where the tap water is contaminated. You can't drink it anywhere, but it's safe in the zones. But they also have intangible infrastructure. 
Some of these zones, like Gurgaon in India, city of one million people, has a private fire department, a private police department, with not just security guards, they actually have arrest powers. There's some zones that have private court systems where usually it's not for criminal law, it's for civil law and contractual disputes, but they'll say, okay, well, the jurisdiction of choice, if no jurisdiction is specified in the contract, is this private court. Some, like Zana in Kazakhstan, has an arbitration center and actually is encouraging other zones to arbitrate their contracts in their center. So there's this whole ecosystem that already exists today with thousands of business parks that has a huge role in the global economy that's extremely obscure, that's kind of a parallel semi-privatized legal system that many people aren't aware of. Yeah. I mean, I've been looking into this for years on and off and feel like I've barely scratched the surface in my research and understanding of this. So is there a concentration of these types of zones in a certain part of the world or are they evenly spread out everywhere across the globe? So if you look on our map, it looks like they're evenly spread out, but the dots can be deceiving because the U.S. has 300, for example, foreign trade zones. Regular, they have a completely separate customs system. But for everything that's not customs, it's like doing business in the U.S., wherever your location is. If you're talking about the more radical experiments, well, special economic zones are completely illegal in the European Union, although a lot of countries had them grandfathered in, such as Poland before joining, one year before joining the EU, created like 30 of them that were just <laughs> empty so they'd have them. So they exist. There's a lot of countries that have economic conditions that are just not suitable for them. So the DRC on paper, Democratic Republic of Congo, has hundreds of what are called briefcase zones or PO box zones, zones that have a PO box address. They're not on our map, of course, because they don't really exist. They don't own any land or anything. It's just some corrupt officials or some sketchy mining dude from like Australia who has a company registered there. So if you actually look at where the, the interesting zones are concentrated, there's Central America, where there's a whole cluster of them, and Northern South America, especially Colombia. There's East Africa and Southern Africa. And then there's the Middle East. The Middle East has a lot of the very radical ones. And of course, there's Asia, East Asia with all of the famous ones. And there's some less interesting ones, but ones that have, let's say, incentives for connected people uh, kind of sketchy ones in Eastern Europe. Some are fine, but but a lot of them seem a little bit sketchy. So they're all over the world. There's a few clusters here and there. And how they're run varies extensively depending on the region where they are. Well, I live in Panama, Panama City, Panama. So we have Knowledge Village here. We have Panama Pacifica. We have these types of places. And I used to live in the UAE. So we had Mazdar City. We used to go down there for coffee and meet friends and things like that. So those are kind of the ones that I'm physically accustomed to. A lot of the other ones in Africa and things like that, I've never had a chance to visit any of these ones. So I, I have very little knowledge or understanding of it. But maybe you can talk about more of the concrete ones that people know without going into ones that like the ones in China where, okay, everybody knows Shenzhen or everybody knows Prosper, which is has been talked about on the podcast, but maybe not really up and running in a lot of senses in that regard. So I actually want to make an interesting point about how a lot of these special economic zones operate. I suspect Panama might be this way, but I don't know for sure. But I know that in Colombia, in the Dominican Republic, 
in Guatemala and Costa Rica, it kind of does operate this way. And what they are is that they're small privately operated business parks that are usually run by one of two types of companies. The small ones are a family owned business and there's some large franchises or conglomerates that might run like 50 zones across the region. In Central America, there's ETEC, there's Grupo ZFB, there's Grupo Guero. There's a few big companies that run, you know, dozens of these zones. And they sometimes are private equity funded or whatever. So they're these private business parks. And on paper, the incentives that they have are quite weak. Sometimes they have a one-stop shop. They all have tax incentives. They all are exempt from the customs area. Sometimes, depending on which country, various labor laws. And, you know, there's, there's kind of a mishmash of incentives and they don't really look super interesting. But I'll give an interesting anecdote of a zone I worked with in this region. So on paper, this zone had, you know, a, a basket of incentives that weren't super interesting. But in practice, what the guy who ran the zone explained to me, and it's a guy, like one guy who runs the zone, explained to me that the regulators take a very case-by-case -case basis to regulating the economy. What it was is that they had, a, they had tenants are the companies that are based in the zones because they're usually renting, you know, a warehouse or something. So in all cases, there was a tenant in this zone. And what it was is that it was an Orthodox Jewish community. They were based in Europe and they were farming these rabbits for decades and decades, maybe centuries to make these hats that they wear during religious ceremonies, these big fuzzy very orthodox Jewish community. And the problem is that these rabbits were part of an endangered species. And EU regulations don't really make any sense in this regard. The EU said, you cannot farm these endangered rabbits. They petitioned, they're like, if you don't farm these rabbits, they're going to go extinct. And the EU's like, yeah, but they're endangered. You can't farm them. So they were looking for a zone. They, they were looking for a zone. They were wandering in the desert, so to speak, looking for a place where they could relocate their community and nobody wanted to take him in. Nobody wanted to take this risk. This zone has no incentives on paper that pertain to farming endangered species. They spoke to the guy who runs the zone. The guy who runs the zone is like, okay, will you sign an agreement that if I can get you an exemption from this regulation, you will move here? And they said, yes. The guy who runs the zone interceded on the government with the government on their behalf. Within a few days, they had permission to farm their rabbits. And Thanks to this, now these Eastern European Orthodox Jewish community can once again wear these amazing rabbit hats, right? Because the zone interceded on behalf of the government. And this is the type of relationships that the people who run the zones have with the regulators. The regulators in certain countries understand that there is a need for economic development. They are themselves frustrated with the fact that there's lobbies and special interests and they often have their hands tied and say, we want to attract businesses, but we can't because of all of these damn rules that we have to follow and to satisfy all the special interests. So they say, okay, we reserve the right to exempt businesses on a case-by-case -case exemption for the zones and, you know, you get incentives. So special economic zones in a lot of these countries, you really can't like go on the website and look at the incentives to realize what you can get. And this is how SEZs work in many parts of the world. And this is very important for the functioning of the economy. Well, that is an absolute first. I never thought on the show we would have Jewish rabbit hats, a conversation about Jewish rabbit hats. I'm sure PETA is absolutely going to lose their mind and social justice warriors are going to come after me for this now. Well, no, they won't. And the reason why is because 
We actually found out about this because we have a client that is a manufacturer of vegan dyes. And how do they make these dyes? Well, it turns out that there's two types of food dyes. Some colors are easy to make vegan dyes for, but either eat animal products that are somehow repackaged as being vegan, or you eat like toxic mineral food dyes. And these are the two sort of options on the markets for a whole bunch of vegan food. So what our client is, is that they make genetically modified algae products to make safe vegan dyes. And the problem is that getting a new GM crop introduced in the US costs tens of millions of dollars. So we actually found out about this zone and found out about the Jewish community as the other tenant. And we were looking for a zone for our client that's making these food dyes. We don't know if they'll move there yet. It's still too early. We'll uh, be scheduling a visit in a few months. But um, they have a situation where importing genetically modified crops into the US is very easy, but doing it in the US is very difficult. So once again, the same regulatory thing, not only is it being used to save the lives of, uh, to save the genetic uh, futures of populations of endangered Eastern European rabbits who have managed to turn Orthodox Jews into their gene propagation mechanism, but it also can be used to make vegan food dyes. And the guy who actually runs the food dye company loved this because he actually himself is an Orthodox Jew. And it's even more perfect than that because they apparently used snails to dye these hats and the snails went extinct. And he actually, interestingly enough, might actually be able to use this algae-based dye to dye the hat. There was a lot of synchronicity when we found out about this. Well, this is quite a tangent to go down, but I think we should just keep going. You know what really drives me nuts is when all of the people, the social justice warriors, also want to get so up in arms about using solar power and electric vehicles and all of these types of things. But at the same time, never look into the manufacturing of what it takes to mine any of these. And actually, it's often giant open pit mines that destroy the environment. You have to use huge diesel trucks that destroy everything and are Build, uh, burning tons of fossil fuels to be able to build a battery and build these types of cars. It's the same things with these wind turbines. When you actually start looking at the, the root cause of it and go all the way back, I'm very doubtful that they're going to be an economic boon for renewable energy or save the planet and the Green New Deal and all this absolute horseshit. So anyways, Yes, it's funny when you start looking at the root of these things. In this case, endangered Eastern European rabbits that actually, if you're not farming them for the hats, they're going to go extinct. It's the same thing with this dye, vegan dye. It's actually the alternative is something that's probably going to give you cancer or something like that. And people think that they're being healthy. So very interesting. <laughs> well, another interesting thing to go on the, the environmental aspect is because these zones range extensively in terms of their environmental impact. This is quite fascinating because a lot of them have dirty industries like mineral refining and solar panel manufacturing type of industries. And there's some really horrible cases because companies can just go there and exempt themselves from environmental regulations. And it's not like, oh, we're exempt from environmental regulations in the Milton Friedman kind of way because if you're talking about exempting yourself from regulations in a Milton Friedman system, there's accountability. So it's, you know, you, you get cancer, then you sue the company, but they're also exempting themselves from accountability. So in one very tragic case, 
in a special economic zone in Southern Africa, there were large piles of manganese dust that were left open air. And this manganese dust, if you breathe it in, causes Parkinson's-like symptoms to people who breathe it in. So what they were doing is that they were hosing this dust down with water hoses every few hours to prevent the dust from spreading rather than using modern dust containment technology, right? Now, of course, there's all of these communities, these schools, literally a bunch of schools nearby, and a bunch of school children and local people who live near the zone after a few years started showing symptoms of manganism, which is when you start developing Parkinson's-like symptom at an early age due to long-term exposure to toxic manganese dust. So at the same time, what's, what's fascinating is that special economic zones are also some of the early adopters of carbon neutral or carbon negative technologies. Why? Because special economic zones are these geographically confined areas. They have a unique legal system. They're not bound by regulations. Think about trying to, I was talking to a guy who was trying to sell a heat storage technology, energy storage technology to the French state-run electrical company. And it's like the French state-run company is never going to progress because they're so slow. Whereas here, you know, you, you talk to Bob who runs the zone. And if Bob thinks he's going to save money and save the earth in the process, he'll say yes. And sometimes Bob has a name like Carlos. Sometimes he has a name like Tamzid or whatever, depending on the part of the world. But at the end of the day, there's always some guy who runs the zone. And they're not very big businesses. You know, it's they're very approachable businesses. Many of them are, are family run. They're, they're some of the most approachable. There's one special economic zone called Green Park in Costa Rica. Gets all of its energy from renewables does carbon offsets. You know, it's a, it's a carbon neutral special economic zone for pharmaceutical development. So you often hear a lot of these critiques about, you know, oh, special economic zones are bad for the environment or whatever. But they're these very blanket statements that are hard to make. Yeah, I think that it's really important to look on a case-by-case -case basis. And I'm sure during your research and looking at 5,000 different zones plus around the world to accumulate this, they're not all going to be created equal. Yes. Here's a few of the most interesting, because I think that the potential of this, of what can be done for both the good and the bad, you need to look at the most extreme case studies to understand really what's going on in terms of what the whole impact that's happened. So not quite a special economic zone, but let's call it some sort of like a special legal area. It's not on my map, but Pakistan had a problem with, there were several villages that were doing nothing but making homemade firearms. Uh, Vice News covered this a while back and selling them to the market. So they tried to clamp down with the problem, kind of like the war on drugs, but they just couldn't. And as a result, jihadists in other countries and fundamentalist Islamic groups in India and Afghanistan and all over the place were getting these homemade Pakistani guns. So the Pakistani government created kind of a special district in this area and said, okay, fine. We'll just buy your guns as the government and sell them to other governments on your behalf. So they solved the problem by just kind of legalizing the homemade gun industry, taxing it, regulating it, which is a very extreme example. Another extreme example is South Africa. South Africa legalized recreational cannabis in 2018. There's a little country called Lesotho. It's kind of a blob inside of South Africa. So Lesotho created a special economic zone, the Bafele SEZ. And what they do is they produce cannabis. 
because Lesotho had not yet legalized cannabis, but they did not want to lose out on the opportunity, but they had a very conservative population. How are they going to make money from cannabis without legalizing? So he created a zone. They invited well-known Canadian companies to grow the cannabis. It turns out that they had a whole bunch of strains of cannabis that had been growing there for centuries that had all of these incredible medical properties. And that's another example of a highly regulated, highly controversial industry. You know, this is not hypothetical, right? This zone is one of the largest cannabis producers, and maybe it's even the largest cannabis producer in Africa. I'm not sure if my information is a year or two out of date, but there's pictures of the prime minister of Lesotho holding, you know, giant bags of weed inside of this, this special economic zone with a bunch of Canadians in lab coat. It's pretty amazing. But you find zones for gambling. I know a guy spoke to him a while back. We had him on our own podcast. And what he was doing is that he, he's Tunisian. And he found out that the Iranians have a problem where they generate all of this electricity from fossil fuels. And nobody wants to buy the electricity because it's Iran. So what do they decide to do with this electricity? Well, cryptocurrency is illegal in Iran. So they create a cryptocurrency mining zone, helps them deal with their dollar problems. So you have the Iranian government that's mining millions of dollars of crypto during downtime from all of this extra fossil fuel energy. You have North Korea. It turns out that something like a third of the people who live in the capital of North Korea and Pyongyang work for private sector South Korean corporations inside of North Korea's special economic zones, where they invite South Korean companies to set up factories and use cheap North Korean labor and hopefully build bridges between the two countries. And obviously the zones get shut down whenever there's a missile scare, but they always reopen within a few months with no fail. So the missile scare gets all the headlines and you keep getting news stories about, oh, the zone is finally shutting down, but then you don't hear it and the zone always quietly reopens and the South Korean manufacturers. So really what's interesting is that you, you name an industry that is at the fringes of the legal and the regulatory system. And there's a good chance that there's a number of special economic zones that already exist. And they have names like multimodal logistics park, you know, very boring names. And they're already quietly catering to it. And there's no protests, no media attention. It just happens and nobody really cares. I love this. This is super interesting. Now, I've been to North Korea. I didn't have a chance to visit this. I actually didn't know about this. But talking about the headlines of North Korea, I saw many times where South Korea was donating cattle. Like I remember reading an article where they donated something like 5,000 cows from South Korea to North Korea. And you'll never hear about that. They're helping to feed the people and there's a lot going on. North Korea is a very fascinating country to study, actually. I had a chance to go there probably 10 years ago and it was so different than what I had seen movies made about it or anything like that. I'm not saying I'm in support of the government. I am certainly not. I'm just saying it is very, very interesting. And your second point about Iran, I definitely read a lot about that, about them mining Bitcoin. And I thought this was hilarious that this axis of evil who's supposed to have no freedom in the world is now mining cryptocurrencies for people to have more freedom and an alternative to fiat and federal reserve currencies. I thought that was hilarious. I mean, Iran has a, is a very free market country. Iran is a free market economy. My mom was in Iran right before the pandemic, and she's traveled to most countries in the Middle East as a, not an older woman, but alone. And she says that Iran is one of the only places where she felt safe besides, I don't know, like Dubai, traveling alone with her hair uncovered, which is quite interesting. 
Yeah, I went to Iran in, I'm going to make up the year, but it was something like 2013, I want to say, 2013, 2014, and loved my experience there. I thought it was so brilliant, and the people were so sweet and warm and gentle, and it was so different. I was expecting something maybe more like Egypt. You know, I've been to Egypt and to Oman and Bahrain, and obviously I lived in the UAE for eight years. So I've traveled pretty extensively through almost every country in the Islamic world. And Iran was so different than anything I had seen in the region. Yes, I know they're Persians. They're not Arabs. Thank you very much. Don't send me hate mail. But it is a really different situation over there. And I just think that so many people really misunderstand the differences between the government and the people. Yes. So if you guys have not heard yet, we are doing a massive online summit this year that I am super, super excited about. The speaker lineup is unbelievable. We have a ton of speakers who have been previous guests on the podcast, which I'm really excited about. But on top of that, we have my friend Doug Casey, who will be a speaker, as well as Ron Paul. Dr. Ron Paul is going to be coming on the summit to talk about freedom in the world right now. I am so excited about this conversation. I think it's going to be really fantastic. So if you want to listen to me and my guests and a lot of my partners give presentations on freedom and moving offshore and what that means for you and your life and how you can have more freedom in your life by becoming an expat, then you can grab a free ticket at expatmoneysummit.com. That's expatmoneysummit.com. At the moment, there is no charge for the tickets. I am putting them out completely for free. I might change this. I might start charging for the base level ticket. I have not made a decision on this yet, but I do know that if you go there right now, you'll be able to grab a free ticket. So go to expatmoneysummit.com, show your support, grab a ticket, check out all the speakers, check out all the different presentations. It's a ton of work to put this on, but I think it is going to be absolutely amazing. I'm super pumped about it, and I hope you are too. Okay, thanks so much. One of the top countries on my list to visit is Iran, because I really suspect that once Iran opens up, it has a chance of becoming another sort of China-type opening up story and just having huge economic success. And when it does, if you want to invest in Iran and stuff, a good rule of thumb when these countries tend to open up is to look for the SEZs. Because a lot of these opening up stores, a lot of these major success stories, whether it's the tiger economies of Asia or China or the United Arab Emirates or Rwanda, first step is always to create SEZs to kind of test things out. That's always the, the natural instinct and has been the instinct of states for a very long time. Well, I think that's a really good point because, you know, you and I were chatting before the interview started. We were talking about a lot of common people that we know. And one of the main things you said is the work that you do is in zones that already exist where you don't work in the theoretical what if one day type of scenarios. This is really concrete things. These things exist right now. And what opportunities does it open up to different industries? Yes. And I think this is a lot of people talk about zones that exist now, a lot of World Bank people, but not very many people are studying them properly because after we made our map, we made our data available to all academics to use for this. They're all doing benchmarking studies where it's like they're going to correlate our data with some other data set, you know, where they have, I don't know, geographical jobs data and see if the zone created jobs. And I speak to them and it's like, okay. So are you accounting for management companies? And they're like, wait, you mean zones are run by companies? They're not just like 
run by the government. And I'm like, okay, have you ever spoken to a management company? No. Have you ever spoken to a guy set up a business in his own? No. Have you ever been to any? No. You know, it's they're, they're woefully understudied. And what's even more fascinating, and I got into a lot of podcasts and I haven't really had a chance to talk about this before, but it is a very interesting aspect of it, this, how long this has been going on for. It's something that's incredible. So if I may go into a bit of a historical tangent, uh, not sure if that's appropriate. I love tangents and I love rants, so you go for gold. So we often talk about the geopolitics of how, well, at least in certain circles, about how China and the U.S. are backing their own zones to sort of get at each other. So... We're going to go back to the 800s AD. You have the new rising power of the Abbasid Caliphate that is based in Baghdad. It's this massive empire, controls modern-day Iran, the northern part of Saudi Arabia, kind of an aligned dipping down to Mecca, Egypt, and a few enclaves on the coast of North Africa. This Abbasid Caliphate is a rival to the old military power, the Byzantine Empire. And by the way, this is not speculative. This is not a historical legend. This is very much what historians write journals about and believe happened. You know, that, that's what I'll say, because a lot of this stuff could get disproven in the future or whatever, contested or reinterpreted, rather. But what the Abbasids did is that they needed to guard the border with the Byzantines. And the Byzantines and the Abbasids took two different approaches to guarding their borders. The Byzantines took a more central planning type approach where the government divided up the regions into themes. Each region was handed to a military government called the Tagmata. And the military government basically could enslave the local population to act as human meat shields to uh, defend their lands. And it kind of worked because it was decentralized authoritarianism, where these local military governors had an incentive to protect their lands, so they would force the peasants and kind of conscript them to find the armies. The Abbasids did something way smarter. They created Thugars on their border. Thugars are tax-free towns. And what happened as a result is that all of the traders and merchants and business people looking for opportunities flocked to these towns. And even more insidiously, it's that because these towns were on the border of the Byzantine Empire, not only did these towns naturally attract fortifications, but these people then would cross the border into the Byzantine Empire and would start selling stuff, these Muslim merchants, to the Greeks on the other side of the border. And as a result, what's happening is that they're spreading Islam behind the enemy lines, and they have this privatized, really thick line of defense with all of these economically prosperous towns that people want to defend, whereas the instinct for the average Byzantine peasant is to run away and to migrate more inland to avoid these tyrannical military governors. And there's not many Greek Christians left in Antioch today. That's sort of the uh, uh, history has determined which strategy has been the more, more successful. Okay, that is a very wild story, and I certainly didn't know that. Now, you mentioned earlier about China and the U.S. and different problems that are happening there. Do you see any parallels between your story and what's happening today? So... What's happened is that in 2012, 2013, China announced that they're going to be building a Belt and Road Initiative. And as part of this, they're building a lot of what they call horizontal infrastructure. Think oil pipelines, fiber optic cables, railroads, freeways, literally horizontal infrastructure. And they're thinking of it in terms of a network, a web with dots and kind of lines connecting them. 
And what's fascinating is that as part of this project, what we discovered making our map is that depending on what you count as a Chinese zone, you know, a zone that was made by the local government, but gets 95% of its business from Chinese government, is that a Chinese zone? Or does the zone have to be made by a Chinese statement company? The Chinese over the last decade have built between 250 and 500 special economic zones outside of China. There's already about 2000 inside of China. So Sri Lanka right now is experiencing massive food riots. One major thing is that the Chinese got the Sri Lankan government to borrow all this money to build a massive port, the port of Colombo, which failed. And it was one of these Belt and Road projects. Kenya, which defaulted, got into a lot of debt to build two ports. They had a, a railway called the Standard Gauge Railway, and they couldn't fix it or complete it for decades. So they used the railway as collateral to borrow Chinese money to fix it up. And then the Chinese built all of these ports and special economic zones along the railroad. Now that they defaulted, there's this legal battle because the Kenyans don't want to hand over the railroad to the Chinese creditors. Uh, there's Chinese special economic zones in Lagos. And what's fascinating is that the Biden administration has been talking, I don't know if they'll act, but there's definitely officials who make public statements along the lines that the U.S. is going to start financing these zones to counteract China. So what I think that the, the beginning of the implication that this has is that for a lot of Americans who are overseas doing business, there's going to be a lot of opportunities as these new projects get announced to get involved early if you're more speculative. But there's also going to be a lot more sort of geopolitical impacts in different countries where you live. For example, in Nicaragua, there's a Chinese special economic zone that controls something like 20% of the coastline. And the US government has alleged, although the Chinese deny it, that they're building a secret military base there. So some uh, interesting allegations like that that are definitely going to shake up emerging markets. And more generally speaking, I think that a lot of people could benefit from this financially or could get caught up in very compromising situations by locating into the wrong zones. Yeah, I did some research on the Nicaragua one as well because I heard those rumors. I don't personally think that it's true. I looked into it. it. It makes a lot of headlines and stuff like that, but I don't think that there's a lot of credibility to that. Okay, but I do want to dig into the benefits or the reasons or the strategies for expats and for people living overseas, for people looking for more freedom, business owners who can actually use these special economic zones to their advantage to deregulate their businesses and and really have a lot more freedom and propel their businesses forward, you could say. So the first thing to know is look for special economic zones in the countries where you're located and ignore There's going to be like a lot of web pages that tell you about what the incentives is. There's this company called Kindly Consulting Firm that'll sell you service and they have the SEO and they list the incentives for like almost every country in LATAM, for example. And the thing is that the paper incentives, once again, aren't actually what matters for the zones. What I would do is I would write a portfolio explaining my regulatory problem, write up a one pager. If the zone is private, don't do this if it's a government zone necessarily, but if the zone is private, ask the zone how they can help you and deal with this regulatory issue. And you're going to get no's, you might get yeses. That's the first thing. 
So start in your own country where you're already based. Approach the private zones there with a one-pager of the hurdles that you have. And then just kind of leave it open-ended and see what they say back and kind of open dialogue with them then. Yeah. And, you know, when we're looking for a jurisdiction, right, for a client, in fact, we're even making a course so that people can do this themselves, not have to hire us for it. Because this is something anyone can. A lot of it is we find the people who run these zones on LinkedIn, you know, and we explain this is the regulatory problem of our client. Do you think you can help? And, well, you know, they'll, they'll have a region of interest, usually a few traits that they're looking for. And we'll just kind of ask them. And sometimes they'll say yes, sometimes they'll say no, and sometimes they'll say yes, but they'll be insincere about the yes. And But once they give you a yes, you can do more research and sort of fact check. Once they give you a yes, the one thing you always, always, always want to do is ask to talk to the other businesses inside of the zone. And you're going to instantly get the truth from that and always visit it in person. So one, talk to the people who run the zone. B, if you like what they say, then talk to the other tenants. And if you like that, go to the zone. And you can't go wrong with that formula. So it's almost like when hiring someone and getting referrals or references from them. <laughs> or, you know, when renting an apartment, right? You True. talk to yep. the landlord, talk to the neighbors and visit the apartment, right? So. so, okay. So that makes a lot of sense. Now, we have jumped around the world and talked about many different jurisdictions and lots of examples, extreme examples. But maybe you can give us a layout of companies or industries or businesses which are really going to benefit from these types of things. Okay. So here's the problem that I have with this question. You name any industry and somebody somewhere has set up a zone that caters to that very specific, very niche industry. 70% of the world's butane lighters are made in one special economic zone in China and something like 60% of the toothbrushes in another zone. There's a toothbrush zone elsewhere in China. There's a plastic toy zone in India. But that being said, the best advice that I can do is look up and you can use our map to do this. Look up to see if there's any zones that are specialized in your target industry and Maybe you could help me by giving me a, an example industry. Are a lot of your viewers more, I guess, in the fintech and startup world? or? Uh... I think my people are kind of everywhere. I have clients in pretty much every type of industry. I ask this question because I want people to not dismiss this information or this episode thinking, well, this is not for me. Because what I'm really hearing is actually it's for so many industries and so many different types of businesses that... If you're facing regulatory problems with your current industry, there's probably a solution out there. You just need to look for it. So that's where my question really stems from. So first of all, let me address the type of regulations that special economic zones cannot help with. Okay. So because they can help with almost everything, right? That's the, the, the good news is that, you know, it's a panacea, basically, if you're smart about it. So one type of thing that they cannot help with is if you're, say, starting some sort of a new financial asset and you want to raise money from U.S. investors, right? Because then it's the U.S. investors who are regulated by the laws where they live. So you can maybe get a few other investors in the zone and there's you're, you've limited your pool to 12 people, right? So actually, a lot of the finance industries are not useful. Industries that produce physical goods, well, a lot of zones are totally exempt from customs. So you can import the raw materials, 
you can export the stuff and depending on where you export to, you might pay a tariff. But but by being in the zone, you're totally exempt from the tariffs of that location. And I don't know, once they enter the Walmart, on their way to the Walmart, they pay the tariff when entering into the U.S. So any industries where you produce physical things. Sorry, just to clarify on that one. So your first point is that in if you're dealing with U.S. financial industries or financial instruments, it's not going to be able to help with that. It can help on the second example with the manufacturing of goods and the raw pieces of it or assembling it. But if you're bringing it into the US, then that is also not going to be helpful. Well, because then you pay a tariff. Because once again, it's the problem where you're regulated at the point where the good is consumed. But you can exempt yourself. Suppose you're making a toy car, right? You're you're like making like a little thing with like some rubber wheels and there's a chasis. Well, normally the rubber wheels would pay a tariff when they enter the country. The chasis pays a tariff, and then the finished toy pays a tariff when it enters the U.S. By being based in SEZ, it's only the finished good that pays one tariff at the end. So you're already helping, and almost every country, including the European Union, has these export processing zones. Even my home country, France, has one of these export processing zones. Some countries like Germany don't need them because everybody gets these incentives anyways. In terms of other industries, well, suppose you're making software and you have a lot of remote workers and you yourself can really be based anywhere. Well, there you can find a low tax jurisdiction. I, there's this OECD minimum 15% global tax, but right now it only applies to companies that make more than $750 million in revenue. And you know what? Through special economic zones, there literally are ways around that 15% minimum tax. So it's not even that big of a deal. For example, it's like you pay the taxes, the zone collects them, but then they give you free rent and they give you free legal services. So if you're doing remote work, you can really minimize your tax burden by locating inside of special economic zones. For example, there's some zones in the UAE that have a 0% corporate income tax with no filing requirements, such as the Dubai airport free zone, which is what I know. So they don't even file paperwork. I think the Cayman Islands has a 0% tax with zero filing requirements. So those can be a great solution for you, even if you have a small business. The one consideration to keep in mind is that office space in the 0% corporate zone is packed because a lot of people want to register businesses there, right? And a lot of them have requirements for you to actually be physically based there. You can't just register something online. So office space has waiting lists and is expensive. But if you can can weather that, then you're in the clear. Suppose that you're doing some sort of a business where you have uh, tourism, like medical tourism. You have a practice. Well, a lot of these zones can issue their own visas. So not just for the zone, but for the whole country. Cayman Enterprise City can issue visas where you... Once you're in the enterprise city and you have a business there, you can bring in like 15 people to just live in the Cayman Islands if you want. So lots of solutions there. Once again, it's a little bit hard to say how can special economic zones benefit you because it's so circumstantial and it's so case by case and country by country dependent. But I'd look it up in your country. So that's really the only advice I can give. Brilliant. 
Well, I think it is so important because I don't want people to dismiss this. I don't want people to think, oh, this is not right for my business or my business is different. Actually, when you start digging into this, there's so many opportunities and options that are out there. If you're a little bit creative, you do a little bit of research or you work with an excellent firm like you guys, you know, there's a lot that can actually be done. So thank you so much for being a guest on the show. I really enjoyed it. I certainly learned a lot myself today. If my listeners want to get a hold of you, if they want to find out more about what you do, if they want to check out the Special Economic Zones map, which you put together, where can we send them? Openzonemap.com for the map, and I'll send you these links to post. Adrianopelgroup.com for our consulting firm. If you want to reach out to me, I'm only on LinkedIn. I'm not on any other social media. LinkedIn it is. But I answer to all messages on LinkedIn. So, Amazing. Thank you so much for your time, and I'll talk to you soon. All right. Goodbye. Okay. I am sure that you have heard me talk about it. We were able to acquire expatmoney.com, our new website. We started completely from scratch. Yes, we still have the expatmoneyshow.com website, but it's really being used just for the podcast itself. But obviously this is much bigger than just a podcast. A podcast is great and I love this podcast and I love everybody who's listening to this, but that is only one small piece of the puzzle. If you go to expatmoney.com, our brand new website, you will see a new blog, new webinars, tons of different resources to help you, as well as a shop and a place that you guys can get special consulting services if you want to work with me, if you need a helping hand on this. So go to expatmoney.com, expatmoney.com. Check out the new website, bookmark the website, subscribe to everything there, and it's going to be amazing. I'm super pumped about it, and I hope you are too. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels. I have managed to secure exclusive rights to a block of villas in one of the hottest up-and-coming regions in my current home country, Panama. Join me Saturday, May 4th at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for our special presentation called Investors Workshop, capitalizing on the globally recognized resort brand coming to Panama. We will discuss how the tourism landscape in this region will change rapidly upon the public announcement of this project and how I have secured the rights for my clients to capitalize on this opportunity before anyone else. Thanks to my connections in the region, I have negotiated pricing that front runs everyone else. Think early, early bird pricing. From gourmet restaurants to vibrant clubs, poolside activities, and even live bands, this resort is going to pump some serious life into the region. But this isn't what excites me or what should excite you either. The exciting part is that these world-class amenities and top brand will attract tens of thousands of tourists. Tourists who will fork over top dollar to stay at our investment properties. Register free at expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for this free real estate workshop. See you on May 4th at 10 a.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. Eastern time, go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinar.